kind of a traditional type of guy. I don't like those things that hang off your ear, so I'll confine myself to the microphone today. Kurt was all stressed out. He's like, you're not hooked up yet? No, I'm good. I'm good. I won't wander. I'm glad to be here. Known Kurt many years, uh, known many of you for many years as well. It's nice to see a full house this morning. Nice to see God's obvious blessing on GBC San Diego. And I can't help but recall years and years ago when we sent Kurt to this work and we laid hands and prayed and commissioned him. Man, he never would have thought that so many good things would have happened. So the Lord is good. He's good to his people. He gives us good things. And I'm glad to be a small part of the work here. So open in your scriptures, if you would, to First Peter. I've been working through this at home of the last close to year now. You're getting something from my archives of six weeks or so ago. I want to look in particular at chapter 3, verse 8, and I've entitled our time together, Five Virtues That Bless the Church. Now, if you have any familiarity with 1 Peter, you kind of understand the big theme, and, and it's, the theme is this, and it's a good theme for all of us who pilgrim in this life. It's joy in the face of suffering. James does a good job of this. There's other authors that touch on this. Jesus himself talks about suffering. This life is full of suffering, but it's also a life of blessing and joy and of opportunity. And it's that opportunity part that I want to accentuate this morning. I think that's what Peter would have us to kind of wrap our minds around together as we look at his epistle to what is now an area of modern-day Turkey, believe it or not. So Think about Turkey and where it is now. This is a letter that was given to that culture a couple thousand years ago. Incredible. And the church was strong and thriving there in the face of suffering. So 1 Peter, in the flow of the book, we move somewhat from the specifics. In the immediate context, specifics are these uh, sorts of things like the imitation of Christ in the workplace, the imitation of Christ in our marriages. And we start now to get into this general theme of behaviors and attitudes that should be characterizing our conduct one with the other. So if you look around, I see a pretty full house. I see lots of opportunity for you to be blessing these people who are part of this local assembly. This is really kind of a, the brass tacks of the essence sort of thing that should characterize our conduct is those who say we love Jesus Christ. There are opportunities to express that love one with the other. And Peter is going to give us some specific instruction. As we have success in expressing this love, I will argue for this, the promotion of the peace and the health and the unity of Christ's church will be elevated in a great way. So you have a ministry. You absolutely do. Young people, you have a ministry. Emily, thank you for playing for us this morning. As I told you, it was perfect. It was lovely. You blessed us. You had a ministry to us this morning. You blessed us with truth. We have the opportunity to bless one another with truth communicated in words and deeds and action which will promote our unity and bless this local assembly. So let me read the text with no further ado. Five virtues from the mouth of the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. And there we read, 
Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I thought it might be a little bit helpful just to define this word virtue for us together this morning. And I have a very ancient Oxford dictionary from 1955, older even than me by three years. And there we read this definition. Excuse me. Virtue defined, conformity of life or conduct with the principles of morality or voluntary observance of the recognized moral laws. I like that. This is kind of alien speech in our culture. It also is defined in this way, standards of right conduct and lastly, a particular moral excellence. Now, it was interesting to me to note that in that copyrighted 1955 edition, that the only concrete example given as an excriptive of virtue lived out and that done properly were those of, quote, chastity and sexual purity. That would probably not make muster today. Uh, Today uh, is a different day than 1955. But most importantly, take this with you. Note that in that definition... There is indeed an assumption of certain absolutes, that we can absolutely know something that's right and something that's wrong, and I find that a comfort. How about you? There's kind of a plumb line that's dangled out there. There is an objective, revealed, intrinsic truth in and of itself by virtue of what it actually is that determines what's right conduct and what's wrong conduct. I need plumb lines like that, and I suspect you do too. In other words, there are accepted norms of morality. There are indeed, brothers and sisters, standards of proper conduct. There really are. And the Lord talks about these things, and he gives us some this morning. And I'm grateful for that. We are in an age of relativistic thinking. The cultural default setting is something with regard to the reality of absolutes. Great, strong, aggressive resistance. We don't want this. But we can affirm with confidence as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's word gives us clear, attainable goals with regard to our conduct or the expression of the living out of the Christian faith. So I'm thankful for that once more. And here we have five ascriptives. And here they are. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let's look at the first, this unity of mind. In the original, it means to be like-minded. It means to be united in spirit, harmonious, if you will. There's this backbeat of peace and agreeability. He says, finally, all of you. In other words, there aren't any exceptions. All of you who are numbered in this local assembly in Peter's day, In our own day here in San Diego, the church I serve at in Livermore, California, all of us are being enjoined, have this unity of mind, each and every one. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody's ignored. Nobody is somehow off the hook in this. All of you, it's clear in the original, each and every one are to be about this goal. And the first is unity of mind. Like-minded a uniting in spirit, harmonious, all of you, 
be on the same page, in love with, in grip by the same sorts of things. We're all generally going in the same direction. We possess a similar goal and objective. Be united in these things. And just to illustrate just ever so briefly, there's probably no greater, better, more lovely, intensely beautiful picture of unity of mind than there is in Christian marriage. This, this visible expression, when a man and a woman, a man and a woman come together and they model in their relationship and in their unity towards one another and their, their, their similarity of purpose and goals, that same sort of relationship that Christ has for his blood-bought ones of the church. It's a good picture of unity. Now, the unity of which Peter references does not necessarily mean a, a comprehensive and, and all-inclusive embracing and agreement upon each and every particular of the faith. It's not saying that. There's room for some latitude. There's room for some diversity of opinion. You know that, right? Right? Do you know that? The elders field your difficult questions sometimes. Right? Sometimes you knock heads with each other just a little bit, right? That's okay. It's normal and it's unavoidable. Some things in the Scripture can be a bit mysterious and a bit unclear. That's why we have Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things. There's some secret things. They belong to the Lord. But most of what's revealed in these 66 books of loving kindness of God to us, we can understand. But there are some examples. Here's a few. Good men, good women disagree on the proper recipients for baptism. I'm a Baptist. I went to a Presbyterian seminary. I pillaged the Egyptians big time. It was great. They blessed me. It was good. But there's a diversity of opinion with regard to the, the theme of covenant and who's included in that. And good men and women disagree, and we can be kind. There are specifics that are unclear about the second advent of our Lord. When is he coming? And every new believer is hitting the prophecy aisle of the Christian bookstore. I guess they still have one or two of those, right? They're online now, right? When's he coming back? We don't know. When is the church age? Will there be a literal rapture? What exactly is the most correct practice with regard to how one spends their Lord's Day or Sabbath, if you will? What can you do? What should you not do? What's gray? What's black? What's white? We disagree on these things sometimes. How about tithing? How much? How little? How often? How about head coverings? That's really mess around this morning. Are they biblical and necessary for today? Or were they cultural only for the Corinthians? Ask Kirk. <laughs> How about the frequency of observing the Lord's table? Is wine only to be used? Or should it be grape juice? Or should it be both? Of course, there are other things. We just need to be careful. Friends, things like this, these are secondary issues. And they should not unnecessarily polarize or divide us. And yes, the elders here, they do have convictions regarding these things. And the elders where I serve, 
We have convictions regarding these things. But I suspect knowing these men and they knowing me, we'll handle these things with the proper weightiness. We're not always united on everything. That's my point. And that's okay. It's unavoidable. But these issues that I reference and others like them as a whole are a small, small part of the teaching that the Bible clearly reveals to us. Now, some of you are concerned. I said I had five points. This is the longest one. The other four go really fast, okay? And the other four are tied to this one. So I believe what's most important, the best thing to promote our unity of mind has to do with our attitudes towards one another, how we look at each other. And here's where I really want to key in. Our attitudes and our willingness to do whatever it takes to remain as close and agreeable to one another as is humanly possible. How do you look at your brother or your sister? I watched a video a couple months ago as I was originally preparing for this message. and um, A famous Christian speaker, a famous modern-day church, was having a conference uh, to a group of Muslims. And he has gone there with a sweet ecumenical spirit in a good way. But in terms of the content that he gave to them, what he clearly did not express to them was his love for them because he gave them nothing to sink their teeth into with regard to the distinctives of the Christian faith in contradistinction to the Muslim faith. So there was nothing that could have saved a soul that came from this man's mouth. And he squandered an opportunity so he could just get along and be nicey-nice with a group of people who are not on page and on board with Christ and what he has revealed. That's problematic to me. That's not loving behavior. So what I'm encouraging us to consider is our desire for unity does come sometimes at the expense of risking a small amount of offense because the truth offends. The cross is an offense but we must speak of the details of the cross if we are really loving, if we really want to promote a type of unity that has within its scope saved souls. Y'all with me? You with me? 1 Corinthians 13 calls the exercise of loving behavior as the proof positives of a genuine desire for a real and valuable, meaningful unity. You know that text, I'm sure. And in the fourth chapter of our own book in Peter, if you read ahead, you'll notice in verse 8 of chapter 4, there's this choice pearl above all. Peter says, you know, when, when an apostle says above all, we should probably kind of like tune our ears. This is probably really important. This is a superlative. This is something of the essence. This is something we, he really wants us to pay attention to. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I'm sure Kurt and his labors here with Steve all these years, um, the, just the proof positive of the effectiveness of their ministry has is, is resulted in the fact that you never sin against one another. And so and I, I know I don't need to say this, but in Livermore we have trouble sometimes, and sometimes the love that we have to display, indeed, the willing, active, eager display of a Christ-fueled Love cloaking a little offense produces a good fruit. And I know it happens here too. We can have fun when we're together for sure. Friends, unity 
is greatly safeguarded by our willingness to keep short accounts with one another, with being willing to let the love that Christ has given cover the small offenses we would project upon one another. It's just, it's, it's the way we're supposed to be. And I'm, you know as well as I do, these things that kind of get us all in a tizzy and dither, they're usually at the end of the day when we kind of calm our spirits, we realize it really wasn't terribly important at all. And we could have just acted properly on the foreside instead of the backside. And we do at times have disagreements. And when we do have a disagreement or we have a more serious problem with one another, it's just simple. The Bible says, go and talk to your brother. There's a process. Take care of it early so it doesn't metastasize into something that will be producing death in a local assembly. Our unity is greatly enhanced also, I believe, in observing these couple of verses in Ephesians 4. I use these counseling all the time. You know, it's amazing. Like 90% of your counseling situations in your tense, difficult life events can be handled if the Spirit attends these verses. 432 of Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you and me. And if, if you wrestle with that, if, if the weight of that really hits your soul, there's just huge power there. Huge power. Indeed, we should be most careful to not practice the bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice that chapter also enjoins against. We guard our hearts with diligence and we labor to honor Christ by hoping the best in one another. That preserves our unity. Secondly, sympathy. Again, much faster now. Uh, this word in the original sounds like our word in the English. Sympathetic, understanding. Our unity is not simply made up of commonly held convictions, although they are important, but our unity is also to be characterized by what I would call a genuine desire to understand one another's situation, both the differences as well as the similarities. How much time do we regularly invest in just trying to honor that old Indian adage, you don't know a man until you walk a mile in his moccasins? How many, how many efforts mentally are exerted in our souls to try to understand, what is that person's situation next to me? What are they going through? What's his life, her life like? What are they up against? What's good? What's hard? What's indifferent? What kind of struggles could I reasonably expect them to be finding in their life right now based on their circumstances? Sympathy is to be characterized by a genuine understanding of one another's situation. And we can help that process by using our own life experiences. And at times we can take those experiences and then tie our imagination to it a little bit and try to place ourselves in those moccasins. Takes effort. And, and I would just suggest this. To the level that we extend that effort, exert that effort, that would be the level that we're genuinely thinking about the other person. Trying to be sympathetic. Are you sensitive to the ups and downs of life? You're in it. You're going up and down. Everybody else is too. Are you recognizing at times that even you yourself are strong and at other times you're weak and it's true for your neighbor as well? we thinking like this? I hope so. 
We're afflicted physically. We're afflicted spiritually. Everybody's there. We have common victories. We have common defeats. We experience the same stresses and pressures. There's nothing new to the human condition. Your life is not unique. And think for a second. What's blessed you as you've sought to negotiate your own unique and personal circumstances? Wasn't it not always at times that arm around your shoulder by somebody that cared and wanted to enter in and said, How are you doing, brother? How are you, sister? How can I pray? You want to get a cup of coffee? You want to talk about this? You want a little perspective? How about just a little bit of unsolicited counsel? How can I help you? What can we do? Showing sympathy. I think we'd be well advised at times when that strange look or response or that sharpness of tone that we see real and or imagined by a neighbor uh, might simply communicate nothing personal from them to you, but simply we had a rough day today. And be willing to use that as the default instead of taking it personally. We should have a desire to be sympathetic and should have a willingness to let love always cover these things. Understanding the differences, because indeed each and every one we're unique and we're at a different place in a different day. Romans 12, we read that a little bit before. We read after this, rather. I want to read verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to, here's the operative clause, the grace given to us, Let us use them. Friends, wherever the grace of Christ is present and the ministry of His Spirit is active, there too should be seen an others-oriented focus and practice. Just a quick sort of gut check for us this morning. When service is over, and you may be hoping it was over already, but when it is over, and it will be over, and you're talking one with the other, just kind of ask yourself, after a few minutes of talking, am I doing more talking or am I doing more listening? Where am I here? Is this about me and what I've been about and what's interesting to me and the things I've done? I'm not saying it has to be a prideful thing, but is it others or is it sympathetic? Is it open to engaging and really hearing, maybe for the first time with real concentration, the circumstances of that person you're talking to? Just think about it. Think about it. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in chapter 1, he writes these words, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I think this sympathy that he speaks of is also very powerfully illustrated in 2 Corinthians 11, where we read, Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? I believe our shared lives together, like Paul in the model he gives us in the letters he penned to Corinth, should be filled with sympathy. Life can be hard. Sometimes we need our brother or our sister to put their arms around our shoulders and love on us in Jesus' name. Let's go to the third, which is exactly what I just ended with, brotherly love. Gloss is having affection for an associate. 
a mutual affection. I can't think of anything more basic to the Christian life than loving behavior one towards the other. It's that love that we are called to both observe and to display, and it's described with the language of family, familial relationships, one with the other. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are loving children of God. Jesus himself said, love each other as I have loved you in John 15. My favorite commentator in 1 Peter, Robert Layton, says in regards to that teaching, we know that we cannot attain to this height completely, but the more we look on it, the higher we will reach in this love. What starts here on earth will be completed in heaven. And I say amen to that. But let's try to complete it here. Friends, we're the forever family. We shall always be so, and we are called as the forever family to love one another. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Walk in the light, friends, and love each other. Fourthly, a tender heart, simply meaning Tender feelings for someone. And literally, as it says, tender-hearted. Warm desires. Wishing for one another all that is good. Do we have that sort of tender-heartedness for each other? We're called to have these good feelings. What the Bible will call healthy feelings for one another. I, I often smile inside as I think about the blessing and goodness of God to me. And just allowing me to hang out and know and share my life with the people I get to share it with. I think about certain individuals, I just go, man, I'm looking forward to seeing that guy again. Can't wait to see him again. Sometimes I think that about Kurt. It's great. I always think that about Kurt. I always enjoy thinking that with Kurt. We've had a week of being in here, and it's just been a week of renewal of relationships. It's just people to people to people, and it's been lovely. I'm tenderhearted, these people. Lastly, a humble mind. Simply this, a modest view of one's own importance. A modest view of one's own importance. How important do you think you are? Well, you may be important, but you don't need to think that. God may use you for important things. A modest view of your own importance. A humble mind. Humble in thought. Humble in demeanor. Modest. Unassuming. A lack of pride or a lack of vanity. That's what a humble mind is. It's the mind that knows it is absolutely and evermore a debtor to grace. That all that it has, it was given And all the success and living of that life is by God's mercy and His enabling. Those who are in possession of a humble mind, of a God-honoring humility, they know, they know with crystalline clarity and conviction that they deserve nothing at all. Nothing at all. 
And they are overwhelmed by the reality that in Christ, they've been given everything. The whole enchilada is theirs, being in Christ. You like that? Christian life's like this giant, tasty enchilada. Of course, if you don't like enchiladas, that doesn't work. But seriously, friends, in Christ, we have everything. Everything. We have security. We have hope. We have convictions rooted in truth, absolutes. We have everything. We need not fear. We need not worry. We're enjoying not to be anxious. We have everything. Everything. I see it more and more as the years go by. We recognize that each breath, every single one, that fills our lungs and leaves our lungs is a gift from God. And we know that the God who fashioned our lungs from the dust is the only one who can promote their ongoing existence. And when that's all done, the Spirit will return to the one who gave it. I'm so encouraged when I see a humble mind in action. And I'm especially encouraged when it's a mind that's in possession, is possessed by somebody who is inordinately talented and gifted. Somebody who really is useful for Christ and really does get it that their usefulness is all of grace and they're still humble. And they can kind of strut around and preen and, you know, name drop and do all that kind of stuff, but they don't. They don't because they have a humble mind. We who have gifts and graces, and that's all of us, these are gifts from God that we're to employ to help others so that we can be useful and that we can enhance the pile of treasure that we'll lay at his feet one day when this life is over. Make no mistake, that's a healthy posture to serve Christ in. It's the only proper posture, by the way. Humility can accomplish so much more within the life of the church than can have heavy-handedness, a domineering attitude. Let's take care to practice that virtue as we ought. So we're starting to close now. Five virtues that we've been talking about, given by Peter to us, relevant to us in our lives, just as they were to his people a couple thousand years ago. Friends, success and the practice of these virtues is ultimately rooted in the grace of our Lord upon our lives. To illustrate this, remember Paul wrote to the Corinthians that none of them, quote, be puffed up in favor of one against another, unquote. He was taking aim for the helpful word of correction with regard to our tendency to inordinately value or pedestalize our favorite Bible teachers and preachers. That was a context. And in that passage, Paul noted that all teachers and even the apostles are simply servants of Christ, as described in that text. They're slaves to Jesus and stewards of the mysteries of Christ. These are not mysteries that they came up with in and of themselves. These are mysteries that they were charged and called and gifted to proclaim, to bring benefit and blessing to all who would hear them by God's sovereign drawing and enabling. So it wasn't about them it was just a high sense of honor and privilege that they had to do these things. So he says, don't think a lot about Apollos. Don't think a lot about Cephas. Don't think a lot about Paul. Just servants. Just servants. 
And he says these incredible words in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's calling them out. Fools. What are you doing? Don't do this anymore. This is a grace-enabled ministry you have. You didn't invent it yourself. It was a gift. So the point I want to make to you this morning is this. Any success any of us may have with anything at all is by virtue of God's given grace. We need to understand this and be changed by this truth. The successes we have in any category of life as lived here in this fallen planet are due to His enabling hand and His kindness to us. Please, please agree with me on this. Yes. If we're really honest, if we're really honest, isn't it amazing that He wants to have anything to do with us at all? And isn't it amazing that He would have us to be a part of His purposes? I I just kind of pinch myself. I get to stand in front of people and preach. And I, and I, I just can't believe it that it's happened this trip. There's a marriage unraveling again. And people are calling for help. I can't believe that I get to be a part of this stuff. It's amazing. It's amazing. Friends, pray. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. That we might be united in our minds. All of us working to a common purpose. And secondly, that we would be sympathetic towards one another. Walking trying at least to walk in our brother's shoes and understand their circumstances and situation. Thirdly, that we would be found consistently, I hope, practicing loving behavior to one another. Um, Nothing should be more basic to us than that. Fourthly, always that we would have close and personal a tender spirit towards one another. Warm desires which will do something really wonderful for us, they'll produce a rich fellowship, really close. And lastly, pray that our souls would be consistently led to the practice of a growing humility, recognizing that all that we have and all that we will ever do and will ever do is rooted in grace. It's not us. Friends, if we truly desire more grace to more fully practice these virtues that we're talking about together this morning, and we want those things to bless the church, we need to look no further than the example of Jesus Christ. Think about Him. It is His gospel, His passion, the forgiveness of sin that He alone offers that has served to unite our minds. We are gathered together in an imperfect and growing unity by virtue of what He alone has done. What He alone could do. Don't we want more? Don't we want to gather together in the expectation that there will indeed be more that He could do in our lives as we come together? We come together, we serve His purposes together. For a moment, consider with me His petition to the Father. When you think about this petition, recall, this is a prayer for unity. This is Christ's desire for each and every member of His church. John 17 The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. That's what Christ wants for us. And who, who indeed 
has ever been more sympathetic to us than has Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. Who could possibly understand us better than he does? The scripture says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin, Hebrews tells us. He knows us deeply. He made us. And his example of loving behavior, you know as well as I do, that's in a class all of its own. There is indeed no greater display of love. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We should marvel at how he did that. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We should be asking ourselves some questions. Do I? Am I now feeling the weightiness of my Lord's love for me? Am I embraced by that? Am I captured by that? And, and if I am, how well am I attempting to display that same love to the other guy? It's kind of where the rubber meets the road. We should marvel at the miracle of God's gospel of love, and we should consider as well the tenderness of our Lord and His compassion for those who has, have the deepest of travail the deepest of needs, physical and spiritually. I'm reminded of Matthew 23 where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Rebels all, deserving of judgment, but our Savior is still saddened by their obstinacy and their rejection. Is that the spirit we have when someone comes against us and rejects us? Friends, it is the graces of Christ, his given for free graces, that will fuel the ongoing cultivation of those virtues that Peter has described for us this morning. It will not be your spiritual tenacity. It will not be your spiritual diligence. It will not be your discipline that wins the battle in the display of these virtues. It will not be you, but it will be Jesus in you, His Spirit leading you. It will be our love for Christ, our great appreciation for what He has done, what He has accomplished for us, that alone that will melt our own self-absorbed, selfish, distracted hearts and turn them for the benefit and blessing of the others. And pray with me that God would find us being about these things, reminding us of these things, taking those spiritual truths that we know, that we talk about, that we say we love, and putting them in gear and gaining traction with them and applying them. That would be my prayer for me and for you. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. May God have us to do these things each and every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, clear text. Can't wiggle around it. It hits us, as it were, right between the eyes. It speaks to our souls if we, if we know you. And Father, we're mindful that not a one of us is... Uh, performed as well as we should in these things, and that's okay because you perform perfectly for us. And so as we're stirred up and hopefully leaning towards improvement, 
we can do so with confidence knowing that you will help us because you help us in everything. Father, I pray for this local ministry. I pray that you preserve it. I thank you for its growth. I thank you for its vitality. Thank you for each and every face that's here. Father, would we be a people led to do these things for our blessing and for your glory. And Father, for those as yet who know you not, we pray, Father, that such things would be attractive. And along with these attractive things, there would be a repugnance towards those things that your word says are sinful. Would you bring conviction of sin? Would you bring an inadequacy of personal ability to change in and of oneself? But to look to Christ, the sin bearer, the sin carrier, the sin payer, the one who in his own shoulders bore the sins of his people on the cross. Father, would you cause every heart here to look to Jesus and find satisfaction of sin. In finding that satisfaction, that payment, find joy and forgiveness. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.